0: Good morning. It's good to see all of you here this morning. Thank you for coming and worshiping with us here at Ivy Creek Baptist Church to be a, to be a part of worship of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. If you have your Bibles and I certainly hope that you do, would you please take them and turn with me again to the book of 3rd John. 3rd John. This morning we will conclude our study through the Epistles of John that we have been on this journey now for by my estimates has been about 5 months. And, uh, you know, when we get to the end of a sermon I always a series, I typically always begin to get a little, uh, it's a little tough for me because, I mean, for the last five months, what's been uh, on my mind has been these, these sermons and this, this study through the epistles of John. But nevertheless, what I know is, is that even though we may, we may conclude this today, and this should be encouragement for you if you've enjoyed th- through this sermon, is that these books are always there. And we can go back and we can read them and we can remind ourselves of the truth that we've learned from them uh, again and again and again. And so uh, as we come to study this morning, we're going to uh, conclude this time through the, this series through the epistles of John. I'm going to date myself just a little bit this morning, uh, but I wonder how many of you remember the uh, I want to be like Mike commercials from back in the early the 1990s. You know, we give a, the, the, uh, they were some in the first They looked at me like I had not have a clue what I was talking about. Uh, those were Gatorade commercials that, that brought Michael Jordan really uh, into our, our living rooms through the TV, and, and uh, they featured him. He was, the, as you remember, he played uh, basketball for the Chicago Bulls. Uh, he was at the time the most famous professional athlete probably on the face of the earth. And uh, if you remember those, those, uh, those commercials, you remember that song, I Want to Be Like Mike, and it might be stuck in your head for the rest of the day, and if it is, you're welcome. You're welcome for that. Michael Jordan was who every person who played basketball really wanted to be like. He had all the moves, he had all the championships, he had all of the the money and the endorsements. And when Gatorade actually was able to lure him away from Coca-Cola, who he was endorsing at the time, when they were actually able to lure him away and, and land their own endorsement deal and they launched that Be Like Mike advertising campaign, it was really pure genius. But you know, history has a way of putting things into, pers- into perspective. You see, no one was surprised when, when Jordan was elected in the NBA's Hall of Fame in 2009. But what did surprise many was the nature and the tone of his acceptance speech when he was elected. Some of you may remember and may know the name Rick Riley. He was a longtime sports writer for, the, for Sports Illustrated, but now he works for ESPN and And he wrote an article on Jordan's Hall of Fame speech, and he called it this. He said it was rude, vindictive, flammable, tactless, egotistical, and unbecoming. In his speech, Jordan slammed at nearly everyone he had ever played with or been coached by. The vitriol that erupted from Jordan during that speech really shocked and surprised many people who who really didn't know him personally. But for those who didn't know him, well, they really weren't all that surprised. Uh, Riley went on to write that it wasn't as if Jordan's speech wasn't from the heart. It was. It's just that Jordan's heart on this night could give you frostbite, he wrote. For those outside of Jordan's circle of friends and associates, his Hall of Fame speech really revealed who the real Michael Jordan was, not just the player on the basketball court. Gatorade's Be Like Mike commercials came out in 1991, 25 years ago. And at that point, it it, it seemed as if everyone truly did want to be like Mike. But in 2009, after that acceptance speech, Riley and many others wondered if there was anyone left who really, truly wanted to be like Mike. If I could summarize Rick Riley's article, it would be this. Be careful who you imitate. In this final passage of third John that we're going to look at this morning, really what we're going to hear is the Apostle John say the same thing to us. He's going to look at us and he's going to say, be careful who you imitate. Now some might say, well, we shouldn't imitate anybody. We should just be ourselves. And that's true to an extent, but consider what John Stott has written. He says, everybody is an imitator. It is natural for us to look up to other people as our model and to copy them. The Apostle Paul certainly understood this. He, he didn't shy away from telling people to, to the letters that he wrote to tell folks to imitate him as he imitated Christ, to follow his example. And the truth is, what we recognize is that all of us need role models. We need examples. We need people that we can look to to pattern our lives after and to learn how to live the life that God has called us to live like. But brothers and sisters, we must choose our examples and our models carefully. That is an understanding. Then let's read this third epistle of John this morning. Third John, beginning with verse 1. I'm going to read the whole thing again just so that we can get our context set up again for us. The Bible says this, The elder to the beloved Gaius, whom I love in truth. Beloved, I pray that you may prosper in all things and be in health just as your soul prospers. For I rejoiced greatly when brethren came and testified of the truth that is in you, just as you walk in the truth. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children walk in truth. Beloved, you do faithfully whatever you do for the brethren and for strangers who have borne witness of your love before the church. If you send them forward on their journey in a manner worthy of God, you will do well. Because they went forth for his name's sake, taking nothing from the Gentiles or the pagans. We therefore ought to receive such that we may become fellow workers for the truth. I wrote to the church, but Diotrephes, who loves to have the preeminence among them, does not receive us. Therefore, if I come, I will call to mind his deeds, which he does, prating against us with malicious words. And not content with that, he himself does not receive the brethren and forbids those who wish to, putting them out of the church. Beloved, do not imitate what is evil, but what is good. He who does good is of God. But he who does evil has not seen God. Demetrius has a good testimony from all and from the truth itself. And we also bear witness, and you know that our testimony is true. I had many things to write, but I do not wish to write to you with pen and ink. But I hope to see you shortly, and we shall speak face to face. Peace to you. Our friends greet you. Greet the friends by name. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of God for the people of God. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word and thank you for its truth. Now I pray, Lord, that you would help us to concentrate our time and our thoughts on the truth of your word this morning and to be able to push out all the things that would clamor for our attention. And I pray that you would help us to be able to, to, to think clearly about these things and, and apply the truth to our own hearts today. That you might be exalted and that we might be conformed more into the image of Christ. This I pray in Christ's name. Amen. Well, if you were with us last week, then you'll remember that our study was of the first part of this letter. And it revealed that that this this letter was written to a man named Gaius. And it was a man, Gaius was a man with whom John enjoyed a deep and and heartfelt personal relationship. In fact, John calls Gaius his beloved or, or his dear friend four different times in this letter. Gaius was someone who embodied what it meant to be a fellow worker for the truth. He consistently and he faithfully walked in the truth. And he demonstrated a love for others who were committed to the truth. He was hospitable and he cared for fellow believers. And he supported and provided for the needs of those that God had called to be missionaries. And so what we found in the first part of this letter was that that the first half of it was written as a commendation, really, of Gaius and for the way that he had responded and behaved. And it was also a letter of encouragement that, that urged Gaius to continue in that synergistic relationships that, that he had with other believers and other missionaries who were committed to the truth. But as we touched on briefly last week, in this letter, John doesn't just commend Gaius, but he also calls out a man named Diotrephes. Diotrephes, as we just read, was a scoundrel. In many ways, he was the exact opposite of Gaius. You'll notice that John doesn't use any words or any terms of endearment with regard to, to Diotrephes. In fact, what he tells them is, is, is if, if I'm able, and if I have the opportunity to travel where Diotrephes is, I'm going to confront him about the things that he said and about the things that he's done. Now, many have questioned and they've offered theories with regard to what caused the rift that had obviously developed between John and Diotrephes. The most common theory and the one that I find to have the most merit is that Diotrephes was either the overseer of a local house church or, or potentially over a cloister of, of small individual house churches and that, that the Apostle John had at one point exercised apostolic authority over. Now, we don't have any real concrete evidence that proves that theory, but... There are some internal markers, internal evidences within this text that seem to indicate that that's the case. What we do know for certain is that based upon this internal evidence is that the sin that lay behind Diotrephes' dispute with John was something that John unequivocally says in verse 9. He says that Diotrephes loved to have the preeminence among those who made up the church. Now preeminence is not even really a word in English that we use all that often. It's a big word. But it might help us to understand what it means if we look at actually the Greek word that it came from. The Greek word that preeminence comes from is the word phileo proteuo. Now you can go impress people that you know a word in Greek. That's really not what's important. What's important is to break down and realize it's a compound word. It comes from two words in the Greek. One is phileo, which we get our word love from that. The the, the city of brotherly love is Philadelphia and phileo is, is part of that word and so Phileo is the idea of love. Proteuo gets its understanding from, from being first. We get our word prototype from that same word in Greek. And so it means to be first. It means to be the, the first out, the number one. And so when we put those two words together, phileo, proteuo, what we understand is it's a love for being first. It's a love for being in first place. It's a love for having an interest in the leading position. It's, like, it's wanting to be the one in charge. And evidently... That was the sin at the heart of the break of fellowship between John and Diotrephes. John tells Gaius in verse 9 that he had written a letter and that that letter had never made it to the church. It was because Diotrephes had refused it. Now, many have wondered what letter is he talking about? Is he talking about 1 John, maybe? The truth is we don't know. It may have been even another letter that we don't have any any copies of. The fact of the matter was, whatever happened, we know that Diotrephes refused to to give that letter that John had written to the church to them. We don't know if he tore it up. We don't know if he just decided not to read it. We're not sure. But what we do know is that he rejected John's apostolic authority and he refused to receive John's emissaries and his missionaries. And what John tells us is that the root of Diotrephes' actions was a me-first attitude. It was a desire to be the one in charge. He loved to have the preeminence among the church. And what that tells us is that evidently, the did not share God the Father's purpose concerning Christ. You see, the Apostle Paul wrote in Colossians chapter 1 verse 18 that Christ is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things He might have the preeminence see, according to John, Diotrephes wanted what only belongs to Christ. He wanted for himself what what Christ alone can have. Furthermore, Diotrephes had evidently not heeded the warnings of Christ against the ambition and the desire to rule over others. Listen to what Jesus reminded his disciples about in Mark chapter 10, beginning in verse 42. Jesus says, you know that those who are considered rulers over the Gentiles lord it over them. And their great ones exercise authority over them. Yet it shall not be so among you. But whoever desires to become great among you shall be your servant. And whoever of you desires to be first shall be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Now I want you to get that. Jesus Christ did not come to be served. He came to serve. And He came to give His life as a ransom. To live a life of self-sacrifice. Diotrephes evidently missed that. He loved to have the preeminence. He was consumed with Himself. He had a self-serving, me-first attitude that grew into a greed of position and power. And, And what we read is that that attitude that He had actually then issued forth into some terrible actions. The New King James translates what Diotrephes did as prating against us with malicious words. Prating is another word we don't use a whole lot in in our normal vernacular in in, in English. But what it means is that he maliciously talked nonsense about John. He spread wicked and false rumors about John and, and about those that John sent. And obviously, he didn't care about truth. He didn't care about honesty. Really, he only cared about protecting his position. He fabricated whatever stories he wanted that made John look and his emissaries look bad so that he would look good. You know, oftentimes, that's that's the way a lot of folks understand leadership. They see leadership as a ladder that you climb up. And the rungs on that ladder are the people around you. And so what you have to do to get to the top is you step on those people and you continue to run up and it doesn't really matter what you do or how you go about it as long as you get to the top of the ladder. That's the way a lot of folks understand what leadership is. But the Bible tells us leadership comes a different way. It doesn't come by stepping on people and getting to the top. It comes by lifting others up. It's it's emulated by Jesus who who knelt with the basin and the towel and he walked around the dirty feet of his disciples and he washed them. Because that's what servant leadership does. And what Diotrephes evidently didn't recognize was that that was the way a leader was supposed to lead. But that wasn't even what he was content with. John says that he refused to receive not only John, but he refused to receive John's emissaries, the ones that John sent to minister to the church. Here's where we see the clearest contrast between Diotrephes and Gaius. In the first part of the letter, John commends Gaius for receiving the brethren, but here we find that Diotrephes rather than being hospitable, he's hostile toward them. But even still, that's not enough for Diotrephes. He not only refused to receive John's messengers, but he refused to allow anyone in his church to receive them either. He kept others from showing hospitality by threatening to kick them out of the church. Now it's obvious from what John writes here that such behavior was a power play on Diotrephes' part. He wanted everyone to know who was in charge and, and who was the one who was calling the shots. And we might think, well, what those folks should have done is just left the church. They should have just gone somewhere else. And that potentially could have been a great idea, except that we need to recognize is that in the first century church, there weren't churches on every corner where people could go, as there are today. In that era of church history, there was only likely only one house church, that was within walking distance, within a day's travel of those believers. Only one place where they could gather together and be instructed in the truth and receive encouragement and discipleship. To be put out of the fellowship, as Diotrephes was threatening to do, was to be put out of fellowship with the body of Christ. It was to lose connection with the body of Christ. And therefore what we recognize is that what Diotrephes was doing... He was not doing for the welfare of the church nor was he doing it for the welfare of those who back in verse 7, John says, were traveling out as missionaries in the name of Christ. He was not doing it for their benefit either. Rather, Diotrephes did what he did for his own glory and for his own sake. John Stott has summarized this text well. He says, Diotrephes slandered John, cold-shouldered the missionaries, and excommunicated the loyal believers because he loved himself And wanted to have the preeminence. Personal vanity still lies at the root of most dissensions in every local church today, writes Stock. All of that then leads me to the first point on your outline today that I want you to see. Remember how we began this morning. We began this way, we must be careful who we imitate. Why? Well, notice the first thing. A self-serving, me-first attitude inevitably leads to the destruction of relationships wreaks havoc in the church and runs counter to the admonition of Scripture and the testimony of Christ. Remember that John is writing to Gaius and and it's likely that Gaius knew Diotrephes. It's even possible, as some suppose, that Gaius was a member of one of Diotrephes' church. And, And if that was the case, then we recognize just how important John's letter actually was. It was a letter that was written to encourage Gaius to continue in the behavior that he had been engaged in all along, and that was being a synergistic worker, someone, a fellow worker in the, for the sake of the truth. Furthermore, John would have realized that Gaius was in a very precarious situation. He had this looming figure of Diotrephes hanging over him. And, and, and as a result of that, John may have been concerned that Gaius might want to start emulating the way that Diotrephes was 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 ruling and the way that he was uh, administrating his position and all the while John is remote he's far away he's he's not right there and so when, when when John writes what he does he wants to make sure that he tells guys look don't follow a bad example that's why he says in verse 11 beloved or, or my dear friend do not imitate what's evil in other words In other words, don't imitate the example that Diotrephes has set before you. Rather, imitate what is good, he says. Because he who does good is of God, but he who does evil has not seen God. Now, having said that and having having revealed the negative example in Diotrephes who is to be avoided, John points Gaius to a positive example, to a man named Demetrius. And and just as has been the case with Gaius and with Diotrephes, there's a lot of conjecture as to who Demetrius is and what position he may or may not have held within the church. The fact is, we don't know anything of certain. We don't know anything for sure who Demetrius was. What we surmise with a great degree of confidence, however, is that he was the one who was carrying this letter, this third John, this third letter of John, he was the one who had it in his possession and was taking it to deliver it to Gaius. And, and so, very likely, Demetrius was unknown to Gaius. Gaius didn't know who he was, they'd never met. And so, he's the guy who's got this third letter that John has written, and he's taking it to Gaius. Now, it's also possible that Demetrius was the leader of one of the ministry teams that John had sent out. And so, as Greg Allen notes, it's likely that John felt that it was important, given Diotrephes' sinful behavior and his dictatorial rejection of the workers of the gospel, that Demetrius be given a clear written endorsement. And really, that's what we find then. That's what we find there in verse 12. You know, the Bible says in Proverbs chapter 22, verse 1, that a good name is to be chosen rather than riches. That being the case, we find that Demetrius had the finest of all such riches based upon what John writes about him. The Bible also says... That, that it's requisite to have the testimony of two or three witnesses before a verdict can be passed. And so Demetrius has that working in his favor as well, because he has three testimonies that testify of his nature and of his quality. The first witness we find is that John says that Demetrius has a good testimony from all, or he has a good testimony from everyone. Who is this all, who is this everyone that John writes about? Well, It certainly would have included those from the specific church and the specific city from which John wrote in and near Ephesus. But it very likely also included believers who belonged to the greater body of Christ at large to whom Demetrius had ministered. He obviously was one of John's emissaries and he 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 likely had traveled extensively throughout the area of the Mediterranean. And so as a result, John can say that this man has been tested and approved of By all, by everyone to whom he has ministered. But John's words can also mean that Demetrius had a good reputation outside the church. It wasn't just limited to those inside. He had a good reputation potentially with those who were outside the church. He was a light that shone in a dark world. And any light that shines in a dark world can be testified to even by those who are in or those who are out. And so all or everyone could mean all of those both inside and outside the church with whom Demetrius had associated. But there's a second witness that John alerts us to. He speaks on that speaks on behalf of Demetrius. John says that Demetrius has a good testimony from the truth itself. See here John references the doctrines of the faith as contained in the word of God. In other words, Demetrius had a sound theology. His beliefs conformed to the apostolic truth of the gospel. And that truth was evidenced. It was embodied in the way that he lived, in the way he conducted himself. He lived a life of obedience that testified to the truth. And the truth testified to his faith. And then there's the third testimony that John alerts us to. And John says, we also bear witness. And you know that our testimony is true. It's as if John writes and says, look, Gaius, you may not know the all, And you may not know everybody else that testifies, but you know me. We're friends. We've been connected together for a long time. That's how I can call you my beloved and and my good friend. And you know what I tell you is true. And listen, this guy is one on whom you can depend. You know our testimony is true. So this is what we know specifically about Demetrius from what John writes. But there's more that we can also know about him with a strong degree of certainty. We know that Demetrius was an emissary of John, and so we know that he likely had been one of the ones who had been refused hospitality by Diotrephes or those that Diotrephes exercised authority over. And as I mentioned to you earlier in the past, over in the past few weeks, that's, that's a much bigger deal than what we might imagine today. Please remember that there were no hotels, there were no fast food restaurants, there were no ways that a person who traveling into a new area could could have shelter and and have food and be able to be accepted unless they had someone who would take them in and show them hospitality. A stranger's survival really depended on his being taken in and cared for by a member of the community into which he traveled. To be refused by that community, as Karen Jobs has stated, left a traveler in an uncomfortable and possibly downright dangerous situation. Yet, she goes on to write, not knowing for sure where he would sleep or where his next meal was coming from, Demetrius was willing to travel for the cause of Christ in uncertain times. He not only had a commitment to stand with John in spite of the rejection and the criticism that came his way from Diotrephes and those like him, but he had an obvious commitment to the advancement of the truth of the gospel. He was willing to go as John's ambassador, but even more importantly, he was willing to go into the midst of hostile territory as Christ's ambassador. And to quote Karen Jobes once more, we know virtually nothing else about Demetrius, but perhaps there's nothing more that we need to know about him. And so just as we saw with Diotrephes, Here we have another example placed before us and before Gaius, and it's a man named Demetrius. Diotrephes had a self-serving, me-first attitude, but John encourages us to choose and follow the better example of Demetrius. So a lot of that, note the second point on your outline this morning. You see, based upon what we read about Demetrius, we understand this. A self-sacrificing attitude, fueled by the desire to live consistently, for the sake of the gospel and the glory of God, will build relationships. It will advance the cause of Christ and it will be attested to by the truth. And so having commended Gaius for what he has done in the past and having encouraged him to continue in those synergistic relationships of being a fellow worker for the truth and then having called out Diotrephes as an example to reject but then also lifting up Demetrius as an example to follow, then John comes to the close of his letter in which he expresses a desire to come and visit Gaius firsthand and and face-to-face and then he closes with a wish for peace for Gaius. And so as we contemplate this third letter, as we contemplate the purpose of it, as we contemplate why John wrote it and what we are to come away from it with, I keep going back to verse 11. Because you see, it's in verse 11 that we find really the, the major import of the verse. We find the, the, the one true command and imperative that, that tells, tells them what they are to do, what Gaius is to do. We find it in verse 11. He says, do not imitate what is evil. That's the negative side. But then he flips it over and says, but rather imitate that which is good. Why? Because he who does good is of God. He who does evil is has not seen God. As I said, this verse contains the main imperative verb of the entire text. And what the point is this, our actions, what we do, how we live, how we love others, those things ultimately reveal to whom we belong. John says that the one whose motives and behavior are for the good, that one is of God. On the other side, the one who does evil has not even seen God. And by that, what he's meaning is there's no relationship to be, he doesn't have a relationship with God because they, to, to be personally related to him means to have, a, to, to have seen him. Now, we know that no one has ever seen God at any time. He's not talking about seeing him in the physical sense. He's talking about being able to see him from the fact that we understand who he is and what his nature is like and then we emulate that same nature in our own lives. Remember what John wrote back in 1 John chapter 3, verses 7-10. through 10. He says, little children, let no one deceive you. He who practices righteousness is righteous, just as he is righteous. He who sins is of the devil, for the devil has sinned from the beginning. And then in verse 10 he says, In this the children of God and the children of the devil are manifest. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is he who does not love his brother. Well, back here in 3 John in verse 11, John effectively places Gaius at a crossroads. He puts a clear choice before him. A choice that has massive implications. He says, either continue to do what is right like Demetrius is doing and stand with the apostolic authority and the tradition of those who bear it or behave like Diotrephes and become someone who is self-deceived and self-serving, doing evil out of their own need for power. To quote Karen Jobes once more, She says, what at first glance seems a simple issue of hospitality is at its roots a choice between standing for the truth and not doing so. That then leads me to my sermon in a sentence this morning. My sermon in a sentence is this. As believers, we must choose the examples we follow carefully because the attitudes and actions we emulate will not only have dramatic effects upon others but they will also give evidence of a true relationship with God or lack thereof. You see, the fact is all of us choose to emulate somebody. We all follow in someone's footsteps. The question is whose footsteps are you following in? Whose life are you imitating? Another question could be considered this way. We might look at it from the opposite perspective. And ask ourselves this question. What sort of example are we setting for others to follow? Are you living in such a way that you would want others to follow in your example? Does your actions and your behavior foster community or does it destroy it? Is your idea of leadership defined by serving others or is it defined by demanding control over others? Are you hospitable? Are you inviting? Are you engaging toward others? Is your identity... Wrapped up in having to be first. Always having to be right. As we read earlier from Mark's gospel, we should all ultimately seek to emulate Christ. Christ who did not come to be served, but to serve and to give His life as a ransom for many. In Him, not only do we find our ultimate example, but friend, in Him we find our ultimate hope. You see, without His sacrifice on our behalf, without Him doing for us what we could not do for ourselves, without Him, as as Paul writes about in Philippians 2, having left His throne and left glory to come here to earth to do for us what He did. And friend, we would forever be lost with no hope in this life or in the life to come. So as we come to a close of our study through the epistles of John, a study that has has shown us what it means to be a follower of Christ. John has taught us that it's not simply enough to just say we believe, but that we must believe the right and correct things concerning the truth about who Jesus is and what he came to do. But that belief is not something that we will just merely assent to in our minds. Rather, it will be necessary that it changed the way we behave. In other words, we will, if we have truly believed that truth, live our lives in obedience to that truth. We will not make excuses. We will not justify our disobedience. But rather, we will see our actions and conform to them to the truth of God's Word. Finally, John has taught us through these epistles that by virtue of our trust and faith in Christ... We will love the brethren. We will love others who are our brothers and sisters in Christ. John would say to us, follow the example of those who believe the truth concerning Christ and live out that truth through their obedience to the word and through their love for others. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of God. And it's for the people of God. Let's pray together.